Well, kids, uh, this morning, uh, I want to share with you some of the craziest and silliest laws uh, that the Internet says actually exist or at one point did exist in the United States. And with each one, I want to ask you a question. Can you obey this law? Okay, and then you can shout out. Hopefully the answer is yes. Can you obey this law? All right. So here we go. Did you know, kids, that in the state of Alabama, you cannot chain your alligator to a fire hydrant? Can you follow that law? Yes. Good. Okay. Uh, Did you know that in the town, this one's going to be hard. This one might be hard. Did you know that in the town of Devon, Connecticut, it is against the law to walk backwards after sunset. Can you, kids, obey that law? You might have to try hard, but can you obey that law? I think you can do it. I think you can do it. Okay, did you know that when you are in Honolulu, Hawaii, if you're ever fortunate enough to go there, and you enter a public park, that it is unlawful to annoy any bird? Can you, kids, obey that law? Can you go to Hawaii and not annoy the birds? I think you can do it. This one's the easiest. If you can't do this one, you need more help than I can give you, okay? Did you know that in South Bend, Indiana, it is illegal to make a monkey smoke a cigarette? Can you, kids, obey that law? I I certainly hope so. Okay. Uh, Did you know that when you are swimming in Oregon... People may not whistle while underwater. That's a law you only have to break once, I think. Can you kids obey that law? I think you can do it. Uh, This one's the most reasonable of all. In Tennessee, did you know that you are not allowed to drive while you are asleep? That's against the law. That should be against the law everywhere, right? When you turn 16, kids, can you please obey that law? Okay. Did you know that in Florida... It is illegal to fish while driving across a bridge. Okay, You cannot cast your line until you have parked your car and gotten out of it. So can you kids obey that law? Okay, this last one uh, was my very favorite. Did you know that in the state of Alabama, it is illegal to wear a fake mustache that causes laughter in church? Kids, can you obey that law? I cannot. I can't do it. And I'm sorry, I have just broken the law. It's a good thing we're not in Alabama, or I would have just broken the law. And and I have to tell you, never have I experienced the power of the law like this, that it makes you want to do what it says you cannot do. I've never wanted to put on a fake mustache in church. Until I learned that it was illegal to do so in Alabama. And and then, voila, I can't help but do it. Now, kids, these are obviously silly and crazy examples. But this is kind of what we're talking about today in our sermons on Romans chapter 13. Because the reality is that there are all kinds of rules and regulations and taxes that our government gives to us and expects us to follow And the question we're considering today is, how do we as Christians engage with our governing authorities? Particularly, 
When we're asked to do what may seem absurd or may go against what we believe, can we follow those laws? It's kind of what we're asking. So I've got some questions for y'all to fill out on your activity sheet uh, so you can follow along during the sermon. And I have an awesome prize for anyone who fills out their sheet and comes and shares it with me after the service. So you will want to do that. Okay. Now, church, today we are picking uh, back up in our series on the book of Romans that we were in throughout last summer and throughout the fall. Uh, And for the rest of the season of Epiphany, we're going to be finishing this most famous of Paul's letters. And this morning we've come to what is simultaneously one of the most familiar, but least understood and hence most frequently abused passages in all of the scriptures, which makes it a really important one for us to deal with. And so if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to open it uh, with me to Romans chapter 13. As we consider together how we are to live in relation to our governing authorities, or what is to be the relationship between the Christian and the state. Now, throughout history, issues regarding the relationship between church and state have always been complicated and have often been controversial. Whether the church should control the state, or the state should control the church, or whether there should be some recognizing and encouraging of each other's unique God-given purposes, it's often been debated. And just to be clear, I'm not going to help us uh, figure that out in any way this morning. I'm not going to make an argument from the scriptures for big government, or for small government, uh, or for the church's influence in the workings of government, or for the government's influence in the life of the church. The reason being is because... While Paul's instructions here in Romans chapter 13 may have implications that we can draw in regard to the purpose and the scope and the role of government in the world, that is not primarily what Paul is addressing in this passage. Instead, Paul is talking to us as Christians about how we as individuals are to interact with the governing authorities that exist. So this isn't a treatise on civics. It's an exhortation to citizens, and in particular to Christian citizens, of how our faith leads us to relate to the systems of the world under which we live. We see that right here at the beginning of chapter 13 in verse 1, where Paul gives us what is really his thesis for this passage when he states, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And for the rest of this passage, he explains both why And how we are to do this, which is really important for us to consider because it's not very easy for us to do. You see, Paul wrote this letter in the middle of the first century when Nero was emperor in Rome. Prior to this point, uh, the Romans had been oppressive rulers over the Jewish people. And not long after this letter was written, Nero would blame Christians for a fire that destroyed Rome. And and, and it would begin a brutal persecution against the Christian church that would last for hundreds of years. And long before and after either of those, really throughout all of human history, there have been all kinds of evil rulers and oppressive regimes which have mistreated those under their care making them difficult leaders to follow. Even in our present day, with our current democracy, which Winston Churchill once described with tongue-in-cheek as the worst form of government 
except for the, all of the others that were tried before it, meaning that it's by far the best. Even in the best form of government in the history of the world, governing authorities are often difficult to subject ourselves to. As evidenced by the fact that in 2017, when many Democrats were appalled by Donald Trump, they declared that he was not my president. And just to be balanced and fair in my criticism, after the last election, when many Republicans didn't accept its outcome, they said that Joe Biden was an illegitimate president. The struggle to know how to interact with our governing authorities continues to this day. So this is an apt word for any day and age. And Paul's instructions to let every person be subject to the governing authorities, it needs to be understood. In order that we may rightly obey it, but not be abused by it. So that's what we're going to consider this morning. We're going to do so by looking at this exhortation of Paul's in light of four main points. I want us to consider the authority of the state, the purpose of the authority of the state, and then what those two things mean for us and what they don't mean for us. Okay, The authority of the state, the purpose of the authority of the state, what that means for us and what it doesn't mean for us. So first, uh, we are called to be subject to the governing authorities because their authority is given to them by God. In the first two verses of chapter 13, we see that declaration made three different times in three different ways. In verse 1 and 2, we read that we should be subject to our governing authorities because there is no authority except from God. And that those authorities which exist have been instituted by God. And whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And so Paul is very clear regarding the source of the governing authorities authority, that it is from the Lord. It is given to them by God. The government's authority is God's authority, delegated. And if you think about it, that only makes sense, because if God is sovereign over all things, if he created all things and controls all things, if he rules over all things, if God is the ultimate authority over everything, then it necessarily follows that any authorities that exist in our lives are given or are at least allowed by him. That's true not just of governmental authorities, but of every source of authority in our lives. It's true of our parents and their authority over us as children. It's true of your job and your boss's authority over you at work. It's true of this church And our bishop's authority over us here in the church. If you're married, it's true of the husband's authority over his wife. If God is the ultimate authority in creation, then it logically and necessarily follows that all of the other lesser authorities are given or granted or allowed by him. And this includes governmental authorities. They exist because God has given them the authority to govern over our lives. That's the authority that the government has. It is God's authority. But that authority isn't given to the government 
or to any of the other institutions that I just listed in isolation. Instead, it is given in tandem with a very specific purpose. And that's the second point that Paul highlights for us. After affirming three times that the government's authority is given from God, he then affirms three times that its purpose is to serve God. Look with me at verses 4 and 6, where Paul writes that he, the one in authority, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. So again, three times, Paul references the governing authorities as servants or as ministers of Of God himself. They serve God for our good. To give approval when we do well. They also serve God for our protection. And or our correction. Bearing the sword to carry out God's wrath. On those who do wrong. Finally they are ministers of God. Serving to administrate the affairs of life. In the collection and the distribution of taxes. And the like. Now, this isn't in any way meant by Paul to be an all-inclusive list of what the government does. But do you see in general how the governing authorities are given their authority by God for a particular purpose? To be his servants here on earth. To promote and reward good. To restrain and to punish evil. To serve in the administration of Of the public life. This is why government exists. And it causes me to wonder. uh, When the last time any of us. Considered our public officials. Those who serve as state legislators. Or civil servants. Or judges. Or police officers. Or social workers. Or IRS agents. When was the last time any of us. Considered them servants. Or ministers. Of God. Just as much a servant of God as a pastor in a church or a missionary in a foreign land is. I wonder if we'd think of them more highly, speak to them more kindly, engage with them more reverently, work with them more patiently, and receive their ministry to us with more appreciation if we did. Here in Romans chapter 13, Paul gives us a very positive concept of the state and of the authority and the role of government in our lives. And so next, I want us to consider both what that means and what it doesn't mean for us as Christians. First, what this means. The primary application of this message is obvious, as as Paul has already given it to us and as I've already stated it. It means that we should subject ourselves to the governing authorities. Paul says it in verse one. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. He says it again in verse five. Therefore, one must be in subjection. 
And he implies it in verse 7 with the exhortation that we should pay to all what is owed to them, whether taxes, revenue, respect, or honor. We are to be subject to our governing authorities. Now, for many independent, individualistic, Western-thinking minds who think that we know best and that we can do better, this is often a hard message for us to accept. We don't want someone telling us what to do. We don't want anyone having control over our lives. We think that being subject to authority in most any form is bad for us. But when there was no king in Israel, and when everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes, things went horribly wrong for God's people. Go read the book of Judges to see just how bad life without authority can become. Or consider what happened in Rwanda in 1994, when a mob rule of Hutus took over and killed nearly 800,000 of their Tutsi countrymen in 100 days of anarchy. Or to a much lesser degree, recall the scenes of social unrest in our country in the summer of 2020. Or the scenes from the Capitol building on January 6th of 2021. Or the scenes that we saw this past week down in Brazil. In all of these, mobs of people rejected governmental authority and violence and chaos ensued. Where destruction was done and life was lost. Whether we realize it or not, it is necessary and good for us as humans to be under authority. We need authority structures in our lives to encourage and reward our good inclinations and to discourage and restrain our wicked ones. Our government does this for us by God's authority and for his purposes in our lives. And so we should subject ourselves to them. This is what this exhortation from Paul means. And so before I move on to consider what it doesn't mean, we have to pause and we have to ask ourselves for a moment. Are we living in subjection to the governing authorities that God has given to us? Locally? Nationally? Are you following the laws of the land? When you're driving your car, when you're paying your taxes, when you're running your business, are you giving the honor and respect that is due to the people given charge over you? Even when you may not like their rules, even when you may disagree with their policies, if you are, then you are honoring and obeying God. If you are not, then you are dishonoring and you are disobeying God. Because these authorities are established by him. They are his servants for your good. Are you living in subjection to the governing authorities that God has given to you? That's, that is the application of this passage. And while that application is right and good for our lives, and while we need to hear it and be challenged by it, 
we must also acknowledge that it has often been misapplied by those in authority and misunderstood by those under authority to the great harm of those that the governing authorities were given to protect. And so while we've considered what this exhortation means in regard to our subjection to governing authorities, we must also consider what it doesn't mean and what the limits of this God-given authority are. And both within this passage and throughout the rest of the scriptures, we have hints of and illustrations for what the limits of our subjection to the governing authorities should be. The first hint that there is a limit to the government's authority in our lives is found in verse 7, where Paul instructs us to pay to all what is owed to them. This instruction, it carries uh, strong echoes of Jesus' teaching in Mark chapter 12, where he was being tested by the Pharisees when they asked him about paying taxes to Caesar. And after having looked at a coin that had Caesar's image printed on it, Jesus said, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And Jesus' point was this, that Caesar has a right to his taxes because his image is printed on the money. But he had no right to their lives because their lives had God's image printed on them. The money is marked in the image of Caesar. Give it to him. It's his. But you are marked with the image of God. And so you can't give your total allegiance to anyone else. Your worship and your devotion and your life belong to God and to God alone. There is a limit to what Caesar can rightfully claim. Jesus is saying. And here Paul is echoing that same sentiment. Give to the governing authorities what is rightfully due to them. But you cannot give them everything. They don't get all of you. Because that belongs to God. There's a limit to the governing authorities' power. So they have authority, but not total authority. And the second hint that there's a limit to the governing authorities' control in our lives is found in verse 4. Where Paul states that the authorities are God's servants for our good. Which again is a qualifier of sorts. Because it shows that the civil magistrates have their authority for a particular purpose. To serve God for our good. But what happens if the authority abuses that authority and reverses their God-given duty? Commending people to do evil or punishing people who do good. Should we just go along with whatever the governing authorities say, no matter what? What the testimony of Scripture and what Jesus' own life show for us is that as soon as the God-given purpose of government is thwarted, then the government's authority over us is as well. And so as soon as the the governing authorities ask us to do wrong or instruct us in something that is evil, that is contrary to the ways of God, then civil disobedience is not only allowed, but it becomes our Christian duty. 
Take, for example, when the Pharaoh of Egypt ordered the midwives of the Hebrews to kill all of the newborn Hebrew boys in Exodus chapter 1. Fearing God and not man, the midwives refused to obey the most powerful man in the world, and they delivered the babies rather than destroying them. Or consider when King Nebuchadnezzar issued an edict that all of his subjects must fall down and worship his golden image from Daniel chapter 3. Knowing that worship belongs to God and to God alone, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to obey. Or what about the time when King Darius made a decree that for 30 days no one should pray to any god except for him? Daniel chapter 6. Daniel refused to listen to the king's edict and defiantly prayed to the Lord in front of a window for everyone to see. Or then there was the time in Acts chapter 4 when the Jewish authorities banned preaching in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John refused to accept their prohibition saying to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then there was Jesus himself, who rejected the extra-biblical prohibitions for the Sabbath, healing and doing good on God's day of rest, in defiance of the religious authorities. In each of these cases, There were abuses and misuses of the governing authority's God-given power, which led to heroic refusals of conscientious citizens, often in the face of great personal danger, sometimes leading to punishment and even death. But that was a risk that they were willing to take because they knew that their ultimate authority was to God and not to man. They knew that they did not need to fear the one who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But rather they feared and honored the one that could destroy both the soul and the body in hell. They knew that as soon as a lesser authority instructed them in a manner that would require them to break one of God's laws, that they had to obey God and not man. In many of these cases, the Lord honored these courageous godly men and women by rescuing them from the certain death that was before them. God spared the midwives and gave them families of their own. The fire of the furnace did not consume Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The lion's mouths were closed so that Daniel was not devoured. Peter and John were released from prison and went on to carry out great ministries. God rescued many from death. Others, including his own son, God rescued through death. But in every case, the Lord honored and cared for those who entrusted and submitted themselves to him above all others. These great saints obeyed God and not man. We must always do the same. Both in our subjection to governing authorities and in our rejection of them. And it's not lost on me that this message has come before us on the holiday weekend where our nation celebrates and honors and remembers Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This was 1,000% the motivation for his civil rights ministry and for his organization of and participation in nonviolent protests. 
our government was abusing its God-given authority and its mistreatment of people of color. And Dr. King called us all to obey God and not man in that regard. We can and should continue to learn from his and from all of these examples. Church in Romans chapter 13, Paul gives us in these verses a very positive concept of the role of government in our lives. And he reminds us and convicts us that in general, as Christians, we should do far more than merely tolerate our governing authorities as a necessary evil in our lives, because they are not that. They are God's servants for our good. And so we should gladly and gratefully submit to their authority in all things. And God forbid if those who are given charge over us ever abuse their divinely appointed authority and ask us to do evil or seek to punish us when we do good. Even then, we need not fear. Because as we heard in our Old Testament reading this morning and in our gospel reading this morning, And as we just celebrated during Christmas last month, and as we celebrate each and every Sunday, there is a far greater governing authority ruling among us and reigning over us to whom our ultimate allegiance lies. This government rests upon the shoulders of a child who was born to us, who is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, our everlasting father and our prince of peace who never subjects his people to evil, but bears evil for them in his own flesh, who never sends out his subjects to die for him, but dies himself for his subjects. His government is a government of ever-expanding peace that is established and upheld with genuine justice and with real righteousness. And it has come among us in the presence and the person, the ministry of Jesus. And it will reign over us from this time forth and forevermore for God's glory and for our good. Amen.